Whimsy, Peter Diath Breeden, DSO, born 1890, second son of the 15th Duke of Denver, Eton and Balliol, motto, as my whimsy takes me. <laughs> Lord Peter Whimsy's residence. Good morning, Your Grace. Indeed he is. It's the Duchess, my lord. Uh, thank you, Bunter. Hello, Mother. How are you? Very well indeed, dear. Peter, dear, you know Mr. Thipps, the architect who's doing the church roof. Uh, yes, what about him? He's found a dead body in his bath. Well, sorry, Mother, I can't hear you. Found what? A dead body, dear, in his bath. Well, what sort of body? A dead man, dear, with nothing on but a pair of pince-nez. Oh. Was it anybody he knew? No, dear, I don't think so. He's terribly upset. I thought perhaps you'd like to run round and ask if there's anything we can do. Mother... Goodbye, dear. Oh, bother. Bunter, her grace tells me that a respectable Battersea architect has discovered a dead man in his bath. Indeed, my lord. That's very gratifying. Your choice of words is unerring, Bunter. My mother wants me to go round and talk to Thipps straight away. Excuse me, my lord, the sale? Oh, damnation. Uh, look, you'll have to go for me and make a special effort for the Folio Dante. I've marked the catalogue with my outside offer. I shall be back for dinner. Peter. I couldn't touch my toast. Well, I hate anything tiresome happening before breakfast, Mr. Phipps. When I saw that dreadful thing lying there in my bath naked, except for a pair of eyeglasses, I assure you, my lord, it turned my stomach. I had to have a stiff brandy. Wonderful what a little nip will do in a case of need. Not much of a view, what? Uh, just the backs of the other flats. What's that great edifice over there? Uh, that's um, St. Luke's Hospital Battersea. Hmm. See your trouble here with the soot blowing in. Beastly uh, nuisance. I have the same problem. Spoils all my books. Uh, Inspector Sugg thought one of the young medical gentlemen at the hospital might have brought the corpse around for a joke. <laughs> He went to ask Sir Julian Freak, you know, the surgeon, if there was a body missing from the dissecting room. And was there? I don't think so. Well, I suppose I'd better have a look at this one. Are you going to turn the sheet back, my lord? Of course. Ah, uh, oh. Hmm. Uh. <laughs> Palmer Violet. Oh, dear. It makes me feel quite faint. Oh, uh, why don't you go make us both a cup of tea, eh? Ah, oh, good idea. Uh, excuse me, my lord. A tall, stout man of about 50. Thick, black, curly hair, cut and parted by an expert hand. Teeth stained with tobacco. A handsome pair of gold pince-nez with a fine gold chain. Bit of a dandy, what? Now then, I'll just lift the head.
banter. The thought of the Dante makes my mouth water. And you've saved me £60. Well, what should we spend it on? Would you like anything altered in the flat? There's an enlarger, I fancy, my lord. And a wide-angled lens would be useful. I happen to have a catalogue, if your lordship would... Hmm. Let's see. £50 seems a ridiculous price for a few bits of glass. I suppose, Bunter, you'd say £750 was a bit out of the way for a dirty old book in a dead language, wouldn't you? It wouldn't be my place to do so, my lord. No, Bunter. I pay you £200 a year to keep your thoughts to yourself. <laughs> Tell me, Bunter, in these democratic days, don't you think that's a, a touch unfair? No, my lord. Bunter, if I sacked you here and now... Would you tell me what you think of me? No, my lord. You'd have a perfect right to, my bunter. And if I sacked you on top of the excellent coffee you make, I deserve everything you could say of me. Excuse me, my lord. You can buy your cross-eyed lens, bunter. Ah, oh, Mr Parker. Thank you, bunter. His lordship's in the drawing room, sir. Thank you. Mr. Parker, my lord. Oh, my dear man. Beastly foggy night, ain't it? A bunter, some more of that admirable coffee, another glass of brandy and the cigars. Parker, I hope you're full of crime. Nothing less than arson and a murder will do for me tonight. I've got a Dante and a body in a bath. What have you got? I've lost a body. Careless of you. I've been round to Queen Caroline Mansions in Battersea. Not Thipps' place. Yes, to see if the body in Mr Thipps' bath was Sir Reuben Levy. Sir Reuben Levy, the financier? He's disappeared. So, when I got wind of this fellow in the bath, I buzzed round to have a look at him. And? The body in the bath would be extraordinarily like Sir Reuben if it had a beard. Old Sugg's quite taken with the idea that the body is Levy. Sugg's a hasty fool. He has taken Thipps' maid Gladys into custody. Oh, good heavens, what is he thinking of? Oh, oh, hold on. Uh, Bunter, get yourself the proper things to drink and join the merry throng. Uh, certainly, my lord. Uh, Mr Parker has a new trick, the vanishing financier. Absolutely no deception. Hey, presto. Uh, tell Parker. Last night, Sir Reuben Levy dined with three friends at the Ritz. After dinner, the friends went to the theatre. He refused to go with them. At midnight, he returned to his house, 9A Park Lane. This morning... He wasn't there. His clothes were thrown rather untidily at the foot of the bed. No clean clothes were missing. He had washed and cleaned his teeth. And that's it? Mm, that's it. It's Duke Stodd, Whimsy. An important city man on the eve of a major financial transaction disappears in his birthday suit. Without his watch, checkbook and, and most mysterious of all, his spectacles. Well, even if he'd gone out to commit suicide, it'd have taken his spectacles. Well, Bunter, what do you make of it? It's odd that a gentleman who was too flurried or unwell to fold his clothes as usual should remember to clean his teeth. Indeed. What did you make of the body, Parker? I should say he was a rich man, self-made, and that his good fortune had come to him fairly recently. Ah, you noticed the calluses on his hands. Both his feet were badly blistered. He'd been wearing tight shoes. And there were some little red marks all over his back and on one leg, which I couldn't quite account for. Quiet. Go on. His spectacles had a very beautiful patterned chain of flat links. 
I shall put an advertisement in the Times about them. See if anyone claims them. His nails were filed down to the quick as though he habitually bit them. Did you examine the bathroom? Yes. Did you notice that the soot on the window sill was marked? I did. Anything more? I'm afraid not. Well, I think you've got most of the points. There are just one or two little contradictions. For instance, here's a man who wears expensive gold rim pince-nez, yet his teeth are not merely discoloured, but badly decayed. Look as if he'd never cleaned them in his life. Oh, these self-made men are terrified of dentists. Second point. Gentleman with hair smelling of palmer violet, manicured hands, never washes inside his ears. Full of wax. Mm. Nasty. Old bad habits die hard. Third point. Gentleman with manicure and the brilliantine and all the rest of it has fleas. By Jove, you're right. Flea bites. Fourth point. A gentleman who uses palmer violet for his hair, etc., washes his body in strong carbolic soap. Carbolic? To get rid of the fleas. Parker, you've got an answer for everything. Fifth point. Carefully got up gentleman with manicured, though masticated, fingernails has filthy black toenails, which look as though they haven't been cut for years. Sixth and last point. His hair has been cut so recently that there is a line of dried soap on his cheek. And there are two longish black hairs in his mouth. Do you mean to tell me, Whimsy, that this man shaved his beard with his mouth open and then went and got killed with his mouth full of hair? He was shaved after he was dead. Uncommonly jolly little job for the barber, what? Somebody killed him and washed him and scented him and shaved him in order to disguise him and put him into Thip's bath without leaving a trace. Excuse me, my lord. Why was Thipps selected for such an abominable practical joke? I mean, does he play the piano at midnight and annoy the neighbours? I mean, damned all Parker, we, we can't have a crime without a motive. A madman? No, I tell you what, Parker, we're up against a real artist and a blighter with imagination. Real artistic finished stuff. It's an elderly lady, my lord. I think she's deaf. Yeah. Hello? Yes, it is. It's old Mrs. Thipps. Really, Mrs. Thipps? No, but of course. At once, Mrs. Thipps. See you soon. Suggs arrested Thipps. How about that? Oh, dear. No, come along, Bubba. We'll collect the old lady and take her down to stay with Mother. Oh, and bring your camera. You can photograph the bath while we're there. Well, pack a bag, will you? Has Mrs. Thipps gone to bed, Mother? Yes, dear. Such a striking old person. She tells me she's never been in a motor car before. But she thinks you a very nice lad. <laughs> Whatever made your Inspector Sugg think Mr Thipps could have murdered anybody? My Inspector is determined to prove that the intrusive person in Thipps' bath is Sir Reuben Levy. His line of reasoning is, we've lost a middle-aged gentleman without any clothes on in Park Lane. We've found a middle-aged gentleman without any clothes on in Battersea. Therefore, they are one and the same person. So sad about poor Reuben. I used to know Lady Levy quite well, you know, down in Hampshire when she was a girl. Before he made his money, of course, in that oil business out in America. The family wanted her to marry Julian Freak. He's never married, you know. Lives all alone in that big house next to St Luke's Hospital. 
I dare say the old man has made one or two enemies. Dozens, dear. Such a dreadful place, the city, isn't it? Yes, I suppose it is, rather. I think I'll turn in now. Must be back in town at eight. Parker's coming to breakfast. I told Ellen to slip a hot water bottle in. Those linen sheets are so chilly. Ring if you want anything, dear. More toast, my lord. Uh, rather. Uh, more coffee, Parker? Mm, yes, please. I've been sleuthing on the roof of Battersea Flats this morning. What an energetic fellow you are. Did you <laughs> find anything? Not much. I looked for footmarks, but with all this rain, there wasn't a sign. All the staircases open onto the roof. You can walk along it as easily as along Shaftesbury Avenue. Damned interesting. Uh, have you developed those plates, Bunter? Uh, yes, my lord. Caught anything? Well, I don't know whether to call it anything or not, my lord. You're the prince. Ah, thanks, Bunter. Now, see here, Parker. These are the fingerprints you noticed yesterday on the window sash and on the far edge of the bath. I give you full credit for the discovery. <laughs> I crawl, I grovel, my name is Watson. <laughs> the criminal climbed over the roof in the wet and, not unnaturally, got soot on his fingers. He arranged the body in the bath and wiped away all traces of himself except two, which he obligingly left to show us how to do our job. We learn from a smudge on the floor that he wore India rubber boots and from this admirable set of fingerprints on the edge of the bath, that he had the usual number of fingers and wore rubber gloves. Mm. What do you think, Parker? I think we should go round to Park Lane and see what Sir Reuben Levy was up to in bed last night. Bunter, bring the camera. A water bottle, a silver-backed hairbrush, a pair of boots, a small roll of linoleum, and a book. Odd sort of fish, your employer, isn't he? Very singular, Mr Graves. Now, if you just pour a little of this grey powder over the book while I hold it... Like this? That's very nicely done. Mm. See that? That's the finger marks. No, no, don't touch them. You'll rub the bloom off. Now these are ready to have their portraits taken. Do you have to do much of this sort of thing? Any amount. Yes, Mr Graves. It's a hard life. Morning tea at eight, valeting by day and criminal investigation at all hours. It's wonderful the ideas these rich men with nothing to do get into their heads. I wonder you stand it. A quiet, orderly, domestic life, Mr Bunter, has much to be said for it. A footmark on the washstand linoleum. Yes, regular hours and considerate habits have a great deal to recommend them. Very simple in his tastes, Sir Rubin. Very simple indeed. Now the handle of the umbrella. Yet many of the time I've sat up till three and up again to call him early to go off Sherlock in at the other end of the country. And the mud he gets on his clothes and his boots. In my opinion, police work ain't no fit occupation for a gentleman, let alone a lordship. Boots chucked in a corner, clothes hung up on the floor, as they say. Oh, that's often the case with these men as were born with a silver spoon in their mouths. Now, Sir Reuben, he's never lost his good old-fashioned habits. Clothes always folded up neat.
Five foot ten and not an inch more. Uh, I suppose a six foot two man might leave a five foot ten impression in bed if he curled himself up. Come now, Parker, don't be frivolous. Come in. Ah, there you are, Bunter. What have you discovered? The book off the night table, my lord, has only the marks of one set of fingers with a scar on her right thumb. The hairbrush, too, my lord, has the same set of marks. The umbrella, the tooth glass and the boots all have two sets. The hand with the scarred thumb, which I take to be Sir Rubens, my lord, and a set of smudges superimposed upon them, which may or may not be the same hand in rubber gloves. The linoleum in front of the washstand is very gratifying indeed, my lord. Besides the marks of Sir Rubin's boots, there's a print of a man's naked foot. A much smaller one, my lord. Not much more than a ten-inch sock, I should say. What did I say, Parker? Five foot ten. Two sets of fingerprints on everything but the book and the brush. Two sets of feet on the linoleum. Well, think of it, Parker. To remember his fingers and to make that one careless step on the linoleum. Do you mean to I say... I mean to say that it was not Sir Reuben Levy who came home last night. Another man came here in Levy's clothes and let himself in with Levy's latchkey. He wore rubber gloves and did everything he could to make us think that Levy slept here last night. Mm. And Sir Reuben? Well, either Sir Reuben Levy has been spirited away for some silly practical joke, or this other man has the guilt of murder upon his soul. Dear me, you're very dramatic. Do you know, Parker, I don't care frightfully about this case after all. I say, should we go home and have lunch? Oh, you can if you like. You forget I do this for my bread and butter. I haven't even that excuse. What are you going to do next? I'm going to get the family history of every tenant in Queen Caroline Mansions. I shall inveigle them into conversation and drop the words body and pince-nez and see if they wriggle. Well, just you toddle off and do it. I'm going to have a jolly lunch with Freddie Arbuthnot at the club. You'll never become a professional till you learn to do a little work, Whimsy. Uh, come round for breakfast tomorrow, Parker, and we'll compare notes. I haven't seen you for ages. What have you been doing with yourself? Just fooling about, Freddie. <laughs> I think all clear, Mr Arbuthnot, sir. Which soup will you have, Whimsy? They're both equally poisonous. Well, uh, Claire's less trouble to lick out of the spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, consomme polonaise, very nice, sir. Wine, sir? Oh, the uh, the Chai and eight. Very well, sir. There's nothing fit to drink in this place. That's a rather deliberate insult to a noble vintage. How's the exchange? <sighs> Rotten. How about those Argentines? Argentines? gone all to hell. Oh, leave it bunking off like that's not the bottom out of the market. You don't say so. What do you suppose happened to the old man? Cursed if I know. Perhaps he's gone off on his own. Giddy old blighter, some of these city men. Far from it. No, hang it all, Whimsy. He's a decent old domestic bird. His daughter is a most charming girl. I didn't know Levy had a charming daughter. Oh, yes. Met her and Mama last year abroad. That's how I got to know the old man. He's been very decent. Let me in on this Argentine business on the ground floor, don't you know? Well, you might do worse. I suppose that Yankee blighter Milligan will get the railway now, if only Levy doesn't bid against him. Is then Milligan a hulking brute with black hair and a beard? No. Milligan don't stand any higher than I do, unless you call him five feet ten, hulking. And he's bald. Oh, this can't be the fellow I had in mind. Poor Levy. The old man's self-made, of course, but he don't pretend to be anything else. 
toddles off to business on a 96 bus every morning. I suppose I'd better pop round and express sympathy or something. What? Pleased to meet you, Lord Whimsy. Won't you take a seat? Uh, my name's Peter. I'm oh. not a peer, you know. That's my brother Denver. Uh. Look, it's, it's a damn cheap barging in on you like this, but the fact is, it, it's my mother, you know. Well, I'd be surely charmed to do anything for the Duchess. Well, that's uncommonly good of you. Well, no, it's like this. My mother, a most energetic, self-sacrificing woman, don't you see, is, is thinking of getting up a charity bazaar down at Denver in aid of the church roof. Oh. It's a fine old antique, um, early English windows and decorated angel roof and all that. Vicar catching rheumatism at holy service, owing to the draft blowing in over the altar, you know, the sort of thing. Mm. Well, none of us have any money. Well, not what you'd call money, I mean. My mother would be frightfully pleased, Mr Milligan, if you'd come down and, and stay a day or two and just give us a little breezy word on the oil business and the almighty dollar. Why, yes, I'd love to, Lord Peter. Uh, now, uh, perhaps you'd be kind enough to uh, accept a little donation to the restoration fund. Um, shall we say uh, a thousand pounds? Oh. That's awfully decent of you. you I, I thought of asking Sir Reuben Levy, you know, and he's floated off in this inconvenient way. Yes, that's a uh, very curious thing. I, I don't mind saying, Lord Peter, that... Uh, well, it's a convenience to me. We're uh, business rivals, you know, though I have nothing against him personally. Mm. Well, I mustn't take up any more of your time, Mr Milligan. Day, isn't it? It's very good of you to trundle out in it. Have some toast knocks for marmalade. And a newspaper. A coffee? Ah, uh, thank you. Thank you, Bantam. Hmm. Oil's in a bad way. Levy's made a difference there. That funny boom in Peruvians that came on just before he disappeared died away again. What was that? Oh, uh, an absolutely dud enterprise that hadn't been heard of for years. It suddenly took a new lease of life last week. Oh, interesting. Well, how did you get on yesterday? An intriguing piece of news. A young woman walking the streets of Battersea saw someone of Levy's description on Monday night. Splendid. Mm. Did you get anything at the house? Levy's private diary. Aha. It's uh, full of little gems, like uh, Tom and Nanny to dinner. My dear wife's birthday gave her an old opal ring. <laughs> Mr Arbuthnot dropped into tea. He wants to marry Rachel, but I should like someone steadier for my treasure. <laughs> um, there's no entry for Monday. Let's have a look. Hmm. Uh, Bunter, br bring some more coffee, will you? Oh. Well, 
This terrible fighter at the stock exchange, who could with one nod set the surly bear dancing or bring the savage bull to eat out of his hand, is revealed in private life as kindly, domestic, confiding, generous and a little dull. A man came to mend conservatory roof. <laughs> um, in May, there's a mention of Lady Levy's nerves, and uh, in September, it says... Um, Freak came to see my dear wife and advised complete rest and change of scene. Freak's name appears about once a month mm. as a dinner guest. Mm. On September the 18th, Lady Levy and her daughter leave for the south of France. Ah, October the 5th, Milligan to dinner. I've been to see Milligan. He looks all right, but you never can tell. He's got a jolly good motive for at any rate suspending Levy for a few days. Well, then there's the new man. What new man? Well, this letter arrived this morning. Very precisely written with a fine nib by an elderly businessman of old-fashioned habits. Crimplesham and Wicks, solicitors, Milford Hall, Salisbury. 17th November, 1920. Sir, with reference to your advertisement today in the personal column of the Times, I'm disposed to believe that the eyeglasses and chain in question may be those I lost on the electric railway while visiting London last Monday. I enclose an optician's specification which should suffice as an identification. Thomas Crimplesham. Promising, eh? Oh, definitely. More coffee, my lord. Ah, oh, thank you, thank you. Now, Parker, look at these enlargements of Bunter's photos. The fingerprints can be divided into four groups. A. Levy's fingerprints on the bedside book and hairbrush. B. The smudges made by the gloved fingers of the man who slept in Levy's room on Monday night on the water bottle and the boots. On the left boot, we find the strangest thumb mark over the mud on the leather above the heel. Now, that's a funny place to find a thumb mark on a boot if Levy took off his own boots but it is the place you'd expect to see it if somebody forcibly removed his boots for him. Mm, very pretty. A bit intricate, though. Yes, well, it fits in with our previous ideas. Now, let's turn to see. Mm. The prints obligingly left by my villain on the edge of Thip's bath. The left hand, you notice the, the base of the palm and the fingers, not the tips, looking as though he steadied himself on the edge of the bath while leaning down to adjust something. Ponsnay, perhaps? It's gloved, you see, but showing no ridge or seam of any kind. Rubber? Mm. Hmm? Uh, D is from a visiting card of mine, the thumb marks of Mr Milligan. I think there's a decided resemblance between B on the bottle and C on the bath. Mm, possibly, but the marks are so faint. But the fact that you and I happen to be friends doesn't mean that the two cases we're interested in have any necessary connection with one another. It would be different if there were any truth in the suggestion that the man in the bath was Levy, but... We know for certain that it wasn't. It's ridiculous to suppose that the same man committed two crimes on the same night, one in Battersea and the other in Park Lane. So, what's Thipp's bath got to do with Levy? I don't know. It is very odd that although the papers have carried a description, no one has yet come forward to identify the mysterious occupant of Mr Thipp's bath. Mm. It's as if the man has melted away out of society without leaving so much as a ripple. This, um, pince-nez business... Perhaps someone planted them on the body to throw suspicion on Mr. Um, Crimplesham. Yes, possibly. Crimplesham might have seen someone on the train. 
I think a journey to Salisbury is indicated. There's an excellent train at 10.50, my lord. Uh, kindly make arrangements to catch it. Oh, damn the inquest on Thip's body is today. Oh, I shall be there, Whimsy. What are friends for? <laughs> Pray, take a seat, Lord Peter. Oh. It's extremely good of you to come in person. I trust you are passing this way. Oh, I'm here on business. Happy to be of service to you. Very awkward to lose one's glasses, Mr. Crumbleshaw. Oh, I, I assure you, I feel quite lost without them. And the chain has a great sentimental value. I was terribly distressed on arriving at Ballam to find that I'd lost them. Did you find them in the train? Well, no, I found them in rather an unexpected place. Uh, do you mind telling me if you recognised any of your fellow travellers? Mm, not a soul. I, I thought perhaps the person with whom I found them might have taken them for a joke. I know practically nobody in London except Dr. Philpot, the friend with whom I was staying at Ballam. I shall be very greatly surprised if he is practising a joke upon me. Oh, forgive my inquisitiveness. D do you have an enemy? Anyone who might profit by your um, decease or disgrace? <laughs> Why do you ask such an extraordinary question? Mr. Crumplesham, you have no doubt read about the Battersea Park mystery. Your glasses are the pair that was found on the body and they are now in the possession of the police at Scotland Yard. Good God. Are you connected with the police? No, not officially. I, I'm investigating the matter privately in the interest of one of the parties. My good man, this is a very impudent attempt. B but blackmail is an indictable offence. No, you misunderstand me, sir. I, I advise you to leave my office immediately. Silence, please. <laughs> yeah. Where are my throat lozenges? Oh. Oh. Uh, open some windows, please. Oh, fucking hell, I'm outside. This influenza about. Ventilated rooms are death traps. Anyone who cares to object to open windows has the obvious remedy of leaving the court. And if there's any more disturbance, I will clear the court. <coughs> Call Mr. Thipps. Mr. Thipps? Oh, hey. oh, Mr. Parker, how nice to see you. Silence, please. We came up by car. I couldn't let old Mrs. Thipps come alone. The coroner's looking daggers at me. Do you think he'll clear me out of the court? <laughs> uh, Mr. Thipps. Can you tell the court when you discovered the body? When I went to take a bath at eight o'clock in the morning. Did you know the deceased? No. Uh, can you tell us your movements the day before? I was in Manchester. I arrived back at St Pancras at ten o'clock at night. Did you go straight home? No. Where did you go then? It's really very unpleasant for a man in my position. You must tell the court the truth. Take your time. Very well, sir. On the train back from Manchester, I, I met an old school friend. When we got to St Pancras, my friend suggested we ought to make a night of it. <laughs> I, I feared I was weak and let him persuade me to accompany him to a club, one of his haunts. I used the word advisedly, and I assure you, sir, that if I had known beforehand where we were going, I never would have set foot in the place. Um, how long were you in this uh, club 
Mr. Thipps. Well, about half past twelve, things began to get a bit um, lively, and I was looking for my friend to say good night. He was um, with one of the young ladies, and they seemed to be um, uh, getting on rather well, if you follow me. I thought I'd just slip away, and suddenly the lights went out, and everybody was stampeding and shouting. It was a police raid. I was dreadfully afraid my photograph would be in the papers. I got a taxi and came home. What time did you get in? About half past one, I should think. Uh, did you go straight to bed? I took a sandwich and a glass of milk first. Uh, nobody set up for you? Nobody. Uh, how long did you take getting to bed? About half an hour. Uh, did you visit the bathroom before turning in? No. And you heard nothing in the night? No, I just tumbled right off and didn't wait till Gladys called me. And then you noticed the bathroom window was open? Yes. <clears throat> oh, thank you. Uh, call Miss Gladys Horrocks. Miss Gladys Horrocks. Uh, Miss Gladys Horrocks. Uh, Mrs. Thipps had a bath on Monday evening? Oh, yes, she did. Monday was one of her regular bath nights. I'm afraid I left the bathroom window open on Monday night. I wish my head had been cut off before I'd been so forgetful. Uh, yes, my dear. Now, how do you think the body got into the bath? I don't know. Could someone have hidden it in the flat? Mrs Phipps was in the drawing room. There wasn't no one in there. And I went into the dining room because I put Mr Phipps's milk and sandwiches there ready for him. And there was nobody in there at all. Nor in my bedroom, nor in the hall. Uh, did you search the bedroom cupboard and box room? Well, no. Not to say searched. I'm not used to searching people's houses for skeletons every night. <laughs> uh, so a man might have concealed himself in the box room uh, or a wardrobe? I suppose he might. Have you a young man? Yes. I'm walking out with Bill Williams. He's a glazier. When did you last see uh, Mr Williams? The last time I saw him was on Monday. Oh. Monday night? Must I tell the truth? You must tell the truth, young lady. Oh, well, it's better to lose me place than to be hung. Though it is a cruel shame a girl can't have a bit of fun without a nasty corpse coming in through the window to get her into difficulties. After I put Mrs Phipps to bed, I slipped out to go to the plumbers and glaziers ball at the black-faced ram. Bill, uh, Mr Williams, met me and brought me back at about two o'clock. Why haven't you told anyone this? Well, I asked leave to go, and Mrs Thipps said no, along with Mr Thipps being away that night. I am bitterly sorry I behave like that. Uh, did you hear anything suspicious when you came in? No. I went straight to bed. Oh, thank you, Miss Horrocks. Uh, call Inspector Sugg. Inspector Sugg. I was calling about half past eight on Tuesday morning. I consider the girl's manner to be suspicious and arrested her. Later, suspecting that the deceased might have been murdered that night, I also arrested Mr. Uh, what was the evidence that led you to suppose that the death had occurred that night? Well, um, 
Uh, are you saying that you have no direct evidence? Had the criminal left any fingerprints? There were some marks on the bath, but the criminal wore gloves. Do you draw any conclusions from this fact as to the experience of the criminal? Looks as if he was an old hand, sir. Is that consistent with the charge against Alfred Phipps, Inspector? I consider the whole setup highly suspicious. Phipps' story isn't corroborated, and as for the girl Horrocks, how do we know this Williams ain't in it as well? Uh, thank you, Inspector. Uh, call Sir Julian Freak. Sir Julian Freak. Uh, Sir Julian Freak, you live at uh, St. Luke's House, Prince of Wales Road, Battersea, and you head the surgical team at St. Luke's Hospital. I do. You were the first medical man to see the deceased? I was. And you have since conducted an examination in collaboration with uh, Dr. Grimbold of Scotland Yard? I have. Are you in agreement as to the cause of death? Generally speaking, yes. Well, please tell the jury your conclusions. I was at the dissecting room at St. Luke's Hospital at about nine o'clock on Tuesday morning when Inspector Sugg told me that the dead body of a man had been discovered under mysterious circumstances at 59 Queen Caroline Mansions. I was able to assure him that there was no subject missing from the dissecting room. Uh, how did you find the body? I found the deceased lying on his back in the bath. I examined him and concluded that death had been caused by a blow on the back of the neck, dislocating the fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae, bruising the spinal cord and producing internal hemorrhage and partial paralysis of the brain. Could the blow have been self-inflicted? Certainly not. It had been made with a heavy, blunt instrument from behind, with great force and considerable judgment. Was death instantaneous? It is difficult to say. I should be disposed to think that the deceased might have lingered for some hours. I may say, however, that Dr. Grimbold and I are not in complete agreement on this point. He thinks the man had been dead for some days. Could you identify the deceased? I never saw him before. Uh, did you gather anything from the appearance of the deceased as to his personal habits? I should say he was a man of easy circumstances who had only recently come into money. His teeth were in a bad state and his hand showed signs of recent manual labour. Uh, thank you, Sir Julian. Uh, Inspector Sugg, uh, would you tell the jury what steps have been taken to identify the deceased uh, <clears throat> a description has been sent to every police station and inserted in all the newspapers has anyone come forward to identify the body plenty of people have come forward but nobody has succeeded in identifying it <clears throat> members of the jury you are not here to gossip as to who the deceased could or could not have been but to give your opinion as to the cause of death. Now, I would remind you that you should consider whether, according to the medical evidence, death could have been accidental or self-inflicted, or whether it was deliberate murder or homicide. If you consider the evidence on any of these points insufficient, 
You may return an open verdict. Sir Julian, I haven't seen you for ages. How are you? Hard at work. Um, just got my new book out. Isn't it too dreadful about poor Sir Reuben? Oh, this is Mr. Parker, who is investigating the case. I'm very glad to meet you. Uh, do you think Sir Reuben may be detained in the hands of some financial rival? Detained? Is that your opinion? I think it very likely. Uh, members of the jury, are you agreed upon your verdict? We are. The deceased died of the effects of a blow upon the spine. We consider that there is not sufficient evidence to show how that injury was inflicted. I had absolutely no idea that there was any thought of connecting this matter with the disappearance of Sir Reuben. The suggestion is absolutely monstrous. Well, that is Inspector Sugg's view. There is some resemblance between the dead man and the portraits of Sir Reuben. Only a superficial likeness. The upper part of the face is not an uncommon type, but as Sir Reuben wore a heavy beard, there is no opportunity of comparing mouths and chins. You may know, Mr. Parker, that I am an old friend of the Levy's. I understood something of the sort. Yes. When I was a young man, I... In short, Mr. Parker, I hoped once to marry Lady Levy. Believe me, Sir Julian, I sympathise. I did all I could to disabuse Inspector Sugg. Unhappily, the coincidence of Sir Reuben's being seen that evening in Battersea Park Road... Sir Reuben? Yes. Someone of his description was seen by a young woman of, shall we say, dubious morals. Oh, these young women will say anything. <laughs> ah, here we are. Perhaps you would come in for a moment, Mr. Parker, and have a drink. Delighted, Sir Julian. Someday I shall abandon my consulting practice altogether and settle down here to cut up my subjects and write my books in peace. <laughs> Dissection is the basis of all good theory and all good correct diagnosis. Indeed, Sir Julian. Very often the only time I get for my research is at night. Doubtless your own work has to be carried on under even more trying circumstances. Yes, sometimes. But then, you see, the conditions are, so to speak, part of the work. You mean that the burglar does not demonstrate his methods in the light of day or plant the perfect footmark in the middle of a damp patch of sand for you to analyse? Exactly. <laughs> but I have no doubt that many of your diseases work quite as insidiously as any burglar. Oh, they do, they do. The neuroses, you know, are particularly clever criminals. They break out in many disguises and cover up their tracks wonderfully. When you can really investigate, Mr. Parker, and break up the dead body with the scalpel, you always find footprints, a little trail of ruin or disorder left by madness or disease or drink or any other similar pest. You regard all these things as physical? Oh, yes. I am not ignorant of the rise of another school of thought which attributes neurosis to the mind alone, but... Its exponents are mostly charlatans or self-deceivers. 
Mr. Parker, I would like to say something in connection with your present inquiry. Only I hardly, I hardly like I to... shall be very grateful for any help you can give me. I'm afraid it's more in the nature of hindrance. It's a case of destroying a clue for you and a breach of professional confidence on my side. Please go on. On Monday night, Sir Reuben Levy came to see me. I only tell you now because you said Sir Reuben was accidentally seen in the neighborhood and I would rather tell you in private than have you ferreting around here questioning my servants, Mr. Parker. You will excuse my frankness. I hold no brief for the pleasantness of my profession, Sir Julian. Did he make an appointment? An appointment? Hmm. Oh, no. He turned up unexpectedly after dinner. He said he was worried about his health. I examined him and he left me somewhere about ten o'clock. May I ask, what was the result of your examination? Well, I will tell you in confidence that I saw grave grounds for suspicion and yet no absolute certainty of mischief. To publish the matter abroad could only harm Sir Reuben and pain his wife. You need not be afraid of your confidence getting into the records of Scotland Yard. I see that you know how to be discreet. We have our professional etiquette, Sir Julian. Swaffham has telephoned, my lord. She hopes you've not forgotten your lunch appointment. The Duchess of Denver will be there. Oh, lord, I had forgotten. Um, so I'm in bed with whooping cough and asked my mother to come round after lunch. Mr Milligan will be at Lady Swaffham's, I believe. Mr who? Mr John P Milligan, my lord. Good lord, Bunter, why didn't you say so before? Right, I'm off. Uh, call me a taxi. Not in those trousers, my lord. Oh, Bunter, do let me just this once. You don't know how important it is. Not on any account, my lord. It will be as much as my place is worth. I wish to God I had never let you grow into a privileged family retainer, Bunter. Let me see, Mr Milligan. You were... Now, don't tell me. A railway king, that's it. <laughs> well, now, uh... I guess it's of as much interest to us businessmen to meet British aristocrats as it is for Britishers to meet American railway kings, Duchess. Indeed. <laughs> By the way, I must thank you for a very munificent cheque for our church restoration fund. Well, we haven't any fine old buildings like yours, and it's a privilege to be allowed to help. <laughs> oh, I hope you'll forgive me, Lady Swatham. Fact is, I had to go and see a man down in Salisbury. I do, Mother. How are you, dear? Mr. Milligan and I were just talking about the church. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, tell us, Lord Peter, are you working on one of your cases at the moment? Hmm? He's investigating a mysterious body in a bath. Oh, uh, like the man who was hanged for murdering three brides in the bath, eh? Oh, I thought that was so ingenious. Oh. I got so frightened I gave up my morning bath took to having it in the afternoon when the Duke was out. Oh. It was an uncommonly ingenious plan, only he shouldn't have repeated himself. If ever you want to commit a murder, the thing you've got to do is prevent people from associating their ideas. Ah. Most people's ideas just roll about like so many dried peas on a tray, making a lot of noise and going nowhere. For instance, Mr Milligan, I've just been down to Salisbury. 
I don't suppose it'd impress you much if you read in the paper tomorrow of the tragic discovery of a dead lawyer down in Salisbury. But if I went there again next week, and there was a Salisbury doctor found dead the day after, you might begin to think that I was a bird of ill omen to Salisbury residents. Oh, I dare say I should. Quite. And if you found that the lawyer and the doctor had once upon a time been in business in Poggleton-on-the-Marsh, you begin to remember me once paying a visit to Poggleton-on-the-Marsh a long time ago. And you look up the parish register and discover I'd been married there under an assumed name to the widow of a wealthy farmer who died suddenly of peritonitis, as certified by the doctor, after the lawyer had made a will leaving me all her money. Were you ever in Poggleton on the marsh, Lord Peter? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, the, the difficulty with this Battersea case, I guess, is that nobody seems to have any associations with the gentleman in the bath. I suppose you knew Sir Reuben Levy, Mr Milligan. Mm -hmm. I know him, I should say, for I hope he's still alive somewhere. Well, I've dined with him. Uh, he and I have done our best to ruin each other, Duchess. <laughs> <laughs> if this were the States, I'd be inclined to suspect myself of having put Sir Reuben in a safe place. But uh, we can't do business that way in your old country, no man. Well, it must be exciting work doing business in America. Oh, it is. I can't wait to get back. Well, you mustn't go till after my church bazaar. Whiskey and soda, Parker. Hmm, don't mind if I do. Oh, I'm tired. <laughs> do you like your job, Parker? Yes. Yes, I do. I know it is useful, and I do it quite well. Not with inspiration, perhaps, but sufficiently well to take a pride in it. Why do you ask? Well, it's a hobby to me, you see. I took it up after the war when there seemed no point to anything. Oh, I love the beginning of a job when one doesn't know any of the people. When it comes to running down a live person, getting hanged or even quadded, poor devil, I don't see if there's any excuse for me butting in since I don't have to make my living by it. Oh, I see what you mean. And there's old Milligan, for instance. On paper, nothing will be funnier than to catch old Milligan out. Suppose old Milligan has cut Levy's throat and plunged him into the Thames. Is it my business? It's as much yours as anybody's. Having to earn a living is the only excuse there is for doing this kind of thing. If Milligan has cut poor old Levy's throat, I don't see why he should buy himself off by giving a thousand pounds to Duke's Denver church roof. I don't want to think he has murdered Levy. Look here, Peter. Suppose you get this playing fields of Eton out of your system once and for all. If Sir Reuben has been murdered, is it a game? It is a game to me, to begin with. I go on cheerfully until I see there's somebody there to be hurt, and then I want to get out of it. That's because you want to swagger debonairly through a comedy of puppets. Or to stalk magnificently through a tragedy of human sorrows. That's childish. If you've any duty to society in finding out the truth about murders, you must do it in any way that comes handy. Life's not a football match. You're a responsible person. Now, let's discuss the case. Well, I'd better tell you about Crimplesham. I've checked his story and it's all correct. Do you believe the body could have been concealed in the flat? Or if there'd been any sign of Thipp's complicity in the crime, Sug would have found it. Why? Well, because he was looking for it. Hmm. I've been asking around in the city about those Peruvian oil shares. I routed out the brokers and I found one name at the back of it. Sir Reuben? No. 
Julian Freak. Mm. He bought a lot of shares last week and then quietly sold them out on Tuesday at a small profit. I shouldn't have thought he ever went in for that kind of game. He doesn't, as a rule. Well, people do these things just to prove that they could make a fortune if they liked. Oh, well, it's late. I'm off home. Good night, Peter. Good night. This case is a complicated riddle of which I have once been told the answer, but have then forgotten it. I've brought you some cocoa, my lord. Oh, thank you. Well, go to bed, Bunter. I shall sit up a little. And I brought this from the Times Book Club, my lord. Thought you might like to see it. Physiological Basis of the Conscience by Sir Julian Freke. Thank you, Bunter. Good night, my lord. Good night, Bunter. Knowledge of good and evil is a phenomenon of the brain, a condition of the brain cells. You can carve passions in the brain with a knife. You can get rid of imagination with drugs. Well, well. Mind and matter are one thing. Conscience in man may, in fact, be compared to the sting of a bee which cannot function without occasioning its death. If humanity ever passes into a higher individualism, we may suppose that the interesting little phenomenon of conscience may gradually disappear. Just as the nerves and muscles which once controlled the movements of our ears and scalp have, in all save a few backward individuals, become atrophied, and of interest only to the physiologists. By Jove, that's an ideal doctrine for the criminal. The knowledge of good and evil is a phenomenon of the brain. It is removable. 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 The knowledge of good and evil is removable. Is removable. Is removable. Good and evil. Good and Breakfast evil. at Denver Castle. Good and evil. Small Good boy with a thunderously beating heart. A great silver urn with a spirit lamp under it. An elaborate coffee pot. I twitch the corner of the tablecloth. The urn moves. The teaspoons rattle. Pull the tablecloth. Harder. Harder. Urn. Coffee machine. The whole of the China breakfast service crashing down. Butter! My lord, what is it? No, put that light out, damn you! Listen! Can't you hear it? Why, you're shivering, my lord. You go to bed and I'll fetch you a drop of brandy. No, 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 it's the water. It's up to their waists down there, poor devils. Listen, can you hear it? Tap, tap, tap. They're mining us, but I don't know where. I can't hear. I, I can't... Again. Oh, we must find it. We must stop it. Oh my God. 
I can't hear. I, I can't hear anything for the noise of the guns. Can't you stop the guns? It's all right, Major. Don't you worry. But I hear it. So do I. That's our own sappers at work in the communication trench. Don't you fret about that, sir. Our own sappers? Sure of that? Certain of it. Now, you just come and lie down a bit, sir. Are you sure it's safe? Safe as ours is. Now, come along. <sighs> Thought we'd had the last of these attacks. Been overdoing himself, bloody little fool. Sorry you've been having a bad time, old man. Peter always had nightmares when he was a little boy, you know, Mr Parker. But he was dreadfully bad in 1918. And I suppose we really can't forget all about the war in a year or two. I think a peaceful weekend at Denver will do him good. Oh, Parker, again, uh, this description of Thipps' corpse to all the workhouses, firmaries, police stations, um, YMCA's and so on in London. Mm -hmm. I have solved the Levy murder and the Battersea mystery. What? Meanwhile, you will scrape acquaintance with one of the students at St Luke's. Oh. Uh, I shall come up to town as soon as I hear from you. Do you mean you've got to the bottom of the thing? Yes. I hope I'm wrong. Is it one mystery or two? One. You talk of the Levy murder. Is Levy dead? God, yes. Come along, Peter. Oh. Uh, your overcoat, my lord. Oh. Oh, thank you, Bunter. Uh, you, you, you understand what you have to do, don't you? Perfectly, thank you, my lord. Gerald reads in the library. No one dies sudden and violent deaths except aged setters and partridges. Heel boy! My lord, I have become acquainted with Sir Julian Freak's manservant, Mr. Cummins. He belongs to the same club as the Honourable Frederick Arbuthnot's man. We dined with Mr Cummins, whom I afterwards invited to drinks and a cigar in the flat. Your Lordship will excuse my doing this, but it's always been my experience that the best way to gain a man's confidence is to let him suppose that one takes advantage of one's employer. I gave him the best old port. The devil you did! Having heard you and Mr Arbuthnot talk over it. <laughs> What on earth are you doing, Peter? Sitting there nodding and grinning like a whatchamacallit. <laughs> Someone writing pretty things to your wife? Yes, charming things, <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> With the second glass of port, I introduce the subject of your Lordship's inquiry. You, uh, you seem to get many opportunities of seeing a bit of life, Mr Buntyre. Oh, one could always make opportunities if one knows how. <laughs> Allow me. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's, it's all right for you here at Piccadilly, right on the spot, as you might say. 
I dare say you'd take the opportunity to slip off at night, eh? Well, what do you think, Mr Cummings? <laughs> That's it. But what's a man to do with a blasted scientific doctor for a governor? Who sits up all night, cutting up dead bodies and experimenting with frogs? Surely he goes out sometimes. <laughs> Not often. And always back before twelve. And the way he goes on if he rings the bell and you ain't there. Temper? No, but uh, looking through you, nasty-like, as if you was on that operating table of his and he was going to cut you up. Not that he's very correct. Apologises if he's been inconsiderate. But what's the good of that when he's been and gone and lost you your night's rest? Keeps you up late, does he? Oh. No, no. House locked up and household to bed at half past ten. Still, when I do go to bed, I like to go to sleep. What's he do? Walk about the house? All night. In and out of the private door to the hospital. He'll bang the door so you can hear him all over the house. Yeah. And talking all night. Mm. And baths. Oh, I know. Last Monday night, Mr Bunter, he decided to have a bath at three on the clock in the morning. Don't say so, Mr Cummings. Yeah. He don't like to go to bed till he's washed the basilises off. Of course, yeah. Sometimes they can't help themselves. Get uh, people visiting late. Well, that's true, Mr Bunter. There was a gentleman come in on Monday evening. He stayed about an hour. It may have put Sir Julian behind hand. Very likely. Some more port, Mr Cummings. Ah. Oh, a little of Lord Peter's old brandy. Oh, uh, a little of the brandy, thank you, Mr Bunter. <laughs> But Sir Julian let him out at ten o'clock. Now, if I had all his money, curse me if I go poking about with dead men in the middle of the night. Eh, Bunter? Description recognised. Chelsea Workhouse. Unknown vagrant. Injured street accident Wednesday week. Died Workhouse Monday. Delivered St Luke's same evening by order freak. Made the acquaintance of a medical student, a Mr. Piggott. Much puzzled, Parker. Good news, old chap. Yes, marching orders back to town, Gerald. Oh. Many thanks for your hospitality, old bird. Feeling no end better. I do wish you'd keep out of the police courts. Make it so dashed awkward for me. Ah, sorry, Gerald. I know I'm a beastly blot on the escutcheon. <laughs> Why don't you marry and settle down and live quietly doing something useful? Hmm? Uh, if anybody comes blackmailing you, Gerald, or your first deserted wife turns up unexpectedly from the West Indies, you'll realise the pull of having a private detective in the family. <laughs> ah, uh, well, when you on the car. The thing I object to in detective stories is the way fellas remember every blooming thing that's happened to them in the last six months. You mean, Mr Pickett, that if I were to ask you what you were doing, say, um, a week ago today... You wouldn't be able to tell me a thing about it? Lord, no. I'll bet you half a crown to sixpence that you remember it within five minutes. I'm sure I can't. Do you keep a notebook of the work you do when you dissect? Uh, drawings or anything? Oh, yes. What's the last thing you did in it? It's easy, because I only did it this morning. It was leg muscles. Turn back the pages of your drawing book in your mind. What came before that? Oh, some animals. I did rather a good hare's leg and a frog's. And a rudimentary leg on a snake. Do your drawings of legs begin on the right-hand page or the left-hand page? Now, let's see. The frog's hind leg is on the right-hand page. What is opposite to it? Oh, dear. Something round, coloured. Oh, yes, it's an arm. <laughs> hmm. Did you make the arm drawings on Thursday? No, I'm never in the dissecting room on a Thursday. On Wednesday, perhaps? 
Yes, I must have finished them on Wednesday. When had you begun them, then? Why, the day before, Tuesday. Were they a man's arm or a woman's arm? A man's arm. Last Tuesday, a week ago today, you were dissecting a man's arm in the dissecting room. <laughs> Sixpence, please. That's incredible. Oh, you know, a lot more than that. Uh, did the arm have very young, fair skin? Uh, no, no, no. O ordinary skin, I think, with dark hairs on it. Mm, a lean, stringy arm, perhaps, with no extra fat anywhere. Well, it was rather poorly developed. A sedentary man who didn't do much manual work? That's right. Was it a young man's arm? Middle-aged, with rheumatism. There was a chalky deposit in the joints, and the fingers were a bit swollen. Man about 50. About that. Who had the head? Old freak bagged the head himself. He called us up and gave us the jaw on spinal hemorrhage and nervous lesions. Was the body fit and well-fed? No. He probably came from the workhouse. Most of the bodies do. Mm. On Tuesday week, then, you were dissecting the arm muscle of a rheumatic middle-aged man of sedentary habits who died of some injury, producing spinal hemorrhage and nervous lesions and so forth, and who was presumed to come from the workhouse. Yes. I say, I did know all that, didn't I? <laughs> it seems almost incredible. Oh, there's nothing incredible in human nature. Have you got that exhumation order? Yes. You really are certain we're not making a mistake? Well, if we are, no harm will have been done. Whimsy, let's have another look at this business. We have two mysterious occurrences in one night and a chain connecting them through one particular person. It's beastly, but it's not unthinkable. I know all that. Freak has a motive for getting rid of Levy. An old jealousy. Very old. And not much of a motive. People don't keep up old jealousies for 20 years or so. Perhaps not just primitive brute jealousy. The thing that sticks is hurt vanity. And sex is every man's weak spot. What about Freak? Levy, who was nobody 20 years ago, romps in and carries off Freak's girl from under his nose. It isn't the girl Freak would bother about. It's having his aristocratic nose put out of joint. It seems very petty. Freak likes crime. In his book, the admiration simply glares out between the lines whenever he writes about a, a callous and successful criminal. He reserves his contempt for the victims or the men who get found out. He thinks conscience is a sort of a, appendix. Chop it out and you'll feel better. How did he do it, then? The man who got hold of the Battersea corpse had to have access to dead bodies. Freak obviously has such access. He had to be cool and quick and callous about handling a dead body. Surgeons are all that. He had to be a strong man to carry the body across the roof and dump it in Thipp's window. Freak is a powerful man. He probably wore surgical gloves. The murderer lived in the neighbourhood. Freak lives next door. What was Levy doing at Freak's on Monday night? Well, you had Freak's explanation. Well, you said yourself it wouldn't do. It won't do. Freak was lying. Why mention it at all? Because Levy had been seen at the corner of the road, Freak had to think up an explanation. Then we come back to the first question. Why did Levy go there? I don't know. But Freak expected someone and let the visitor in himself. But the caller left again at ten. Oh, Charles, I did not expect this of you. Who saw him go? No, all right, then. Where was Levy? Levy went into the library and never came down. Freak put him in the bedroom next door. Do you mean to say Freak got the whole job finished before three in the morning? Why not? Quick work. Freak is a professional. <sighs> what about Crimplesham's pince-nez? Mm, that's a bit mysterious. 
And why Thipps bathroom? Why indeed? Pure accident, perhaps, or pure devilry. Do you think all this elaborate scheme could have been put together in a night whimsy? No, far from it. It was conceived as soon as that man who bore a superficial resemblance to Levy came into the workhouse. He had several days. I see. Freak gave himself away at the inquest. He and Grimble disagreed about when the man died. If an ordinary doctor like Grimble presumes to disagree with a man like Freak, it's because he is sure of his ground. Then, if your theory is sound, Freak made a mistake. Yes, a very slight one. He was being unnecessarily cautious about raising suspicions in the mind of the workhouse doctor. What made him lose his head? A chain of unforeseen accidents. My advertisement in the Times, the connection with the Battersea end of the mystery, seeing you talking to my mother at the inquest. His aim in life was to prevent the two cases from linking up, and there were two of the links sitting literally side by side. You were investigating Sir Reuben's disappearance, and I was investigating Thipp's body. Well, well. If all this is true, I suppose I have only one course of action open to me. It affords me, if I may say so, great satisfaction that in a collaboration like ours, all the uninteresting and disagreeable routine work is done by you. Do you anticipate any difficulty about the warrant? No. Then I shall leave that part of it to you. I shall settle down, finally, to a perusal of my Dante. After I have made a visit. Peter, there's nothing physically wrong with you, but you've certainly been working far too hard. <clears throat> Tell me again what happened. You were sitting in the dark. Were you warm? I think the fire had died down. My man tells me that my teeth were chattering. You live in Piccadilly? Yes. Heavy traffic sometimes goes past in the night, I expect. Oh, frequently. You had these attacks in 1918? Yes, I was very ill for some months. Since then, they've occurred less frequently? Well, much less frequently. When did the last occur? About um, nine months ago. Under what circumstances? I was worried by family matters. You were interested last year, I think, in some police case. It's in the recovery of Lord Attenborough's emerald necklace, yes. Mm. I must have involved some severe mental exercise. Oh, I suppose so, but I enjoyed it very much. You were interested, but not distressed? Exactly. Ah, well, Lord Peter, I'll tell you about yourself in quite untechnical language. Oh, thanks. I'm an awful fool about long words. <laughs> you know quite well that the war has left its mark on you in what I may call old wounds in your brain. Sensations received by your nerve endings send messages to your brain and produce minute physical changes. These changes in their turn set up sensations which we call horror fear, sense of responsibility, and so on. Yes, I follow you. Very well. Now, if you stimulate these damaged places in your brain, you run the risk of opening up the old wounds. Dread of German mines, responsibility for the lives of your men, strained attention, and the ability to distinguish small sounds through the overpowering noise of guns. I see. This effect would be increased by extraneous circumstances producing other familiar physical sensations. Night, cold, or the rattling of heavy traffic, for instance. Any of these could lead you to imagine you were still at war. Yes. 
The old wounds are nearly healed, but not quite. The ordinary exercise of your mental faculties has no bad effect. It is only when you excite the injured part of your brain. You must learn to be irresponsible, Lord Peter. Oh, my friends say I'm too irresponsible already. A sensitive, nervous temperament often appears so, owing to its mental nimbleness. <clears throat> I will give you something to strengthen your nerves. Oh, well, thank you, Sir Julian. Now, if you will roll up your sleeve. This is just our Dean. Give me your arm. Uh, what's that you're going to stick into me? You've had this kind of thing before, I expect. Oh, yes, I've had an injection before. And you know, I, I don't care frightfully about it. Oh, oh dear. Ah, clumsy of me. As you like, of course, Lord Peter. I'm afraid I'm rather a silly ass, but I never could abide the little gadgets. Oh, dear. It's broken. In that case, it would be better not to have the injection. Just do what you can to lessen any immediate strain. Oh, yes, I'll, I'll take it easy, thanks. I'm much obliged to you. Take care, gentlemen. There's an open grave to your right. Freshly turned clay. Oh. Steady on, old man. Uh, where is Lady Levy? In the mortuary. The Duchess of Denver's with her. Your mother is wonderful, Peter. Here we are. Dante's demons working with pitchforks. I mean shovels. Hey, steady, man. The coffin. Right, you are, sir. You go ahead with the lantern. We'll follow you. More graves. Crooked headstones. Rough grass. This way, gentlemen. Mind the step. The mortuary. Red brick and sizzling gas jets. Two women in black. Dr. Grimbold. Easy now. Be careful with the chisel. Not much substance to these here boards, sir. You mustn't cry. The Dante demons depart. Good, decent demons in corduroy. Uh, it would be better, I think, if the lamp was on this side. Ah, uh, thank you, that's excellent. The sudden, brilliant circle of an electric lamp over the table. Dr. Grimbold's beard and spectacles. Parker, bending close. The rest of the room in the enhanced darkness of the gas jets and the fog. Lady Levy has told us what to look for. Ah, uh, yes. The lower jaw, the last tooth but one, filled with gold. A three-cornered scar, uh, just above the left elbow, and more. Ah, uh, yes, I see. Just as you described them all, Lady Levy. Uh, thank you. Tell please to cover the head. Come along, Christine. It's all over now. Are your men ready, Charles? Yes. Saggy's going with them. Sarg? Yes. Poor devil. They had him up on the mat at headquarters for bungling the case. 
All that evidence of Thipps about the nightclub was corroborated, you know. It may do Sug some good to be at the death, as it were. Yes, well, it doesn't matter. Whoever goes won't get there in time. Inspector Sug, my lord. Gentlemen, we've got our man. Oh. Well done, Inspector Sug. We were just in time. He was in his library writing. And when he saw us, he made a grab for his hypodermic, but we were too quick for him, my lord. He's actually in jail, then. Oh, safe enough. Congratulations, Inspector. Have a drink. Oh, thank you, my lord. Uh, Freak was writing a full confession addressed to your lordship. Uh, the police will have to have it, of course, but... Uh, I brought it along for you to see first. Oh, thanks. I'd like to hear it, Charles. Rather. Very well. Dear Lord Peter, of all human emotions, except perhaps those of hunger and fear, the sexual, the sexual appetite produces the most violent reactions. I have been planning this event for years, ever since Christine married another man. To my lust for revenge, I have added to the painstaking care of the scientist. I have studied criminology, fiction and fact, and seen how in every murder the crux of the problem is in the disposal of the body. As a doctor, the means of death are always available to me. The week before Sir Rubin's disappearance, I saw an unknown vagrant who had been heavily struck on the back of the neck, dislocating the fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae and heavily bruising the spinal cord. It was highly unlikely he would recover. The man's superficial resemblance to Sir Rubin suited my purpose very well. At the end of that week, I bought, anonymously, the stock of certain Peruvian oil fields. On Monday morning, the market in Peruvians opened briskly. Rumours had evidently got about that somebody knew something. I bought a couple of hundred more shares in my own name. At lunchtime, I made sure I ran into Levy and took him to lunch. How are things with the exchange? Uh, all right. Didn't know you were interested. I have a little flutter occasionally. I plan to make a good bit on Peruvian oil. Really? Mm. Hasn't paid a dividend for umpteen years. I've got inside information. More wine. <clears throat> Look. I don't mind doing you and Christine a good turn. I'm a cautious bird, you know. I'd like a bit of proof. <laughs> of course. Come round to my place tonight after dinner and I'll show you the report. Any time after nine. Don't tell anyone that you're coming. Don't want everyone to get in on it. My vagrant at the workhouse died at about 11 o'clock and was delivered to the hospital. In the afternoon, I had tea with an old friend and saw him off by the 5.35 from Victoria. 
On the way home, I discovered somebody's gold-rimmed pince-nez caught in the astrakhan collar of my overcoat. Levy arrived just after nine, and we went up to the library, where I struck him heavily with the poker just above the fourth cervical. It was delicate work, calculating the exact force necessary to kill him without breaking the skin. Just before ten, I went downstairs, let myself out, shouting good night. I walked down the street, went in by the hospital door, and returned to the house by way of the private passage. When the servants had gone to bed, I wheeled Levy to the hospital and substituted him for my interesting corpse. I wheeled my pauper back to the house. It was now five past eleven. I carried the body to my bedroom and put it into the bed. I stripped and put on Levy's clothes, not forgetting to take his spectacles. I took my own clothes with me in a suitcase and reached 9A Park Lane just after midnight. I let myself in with Levy's key. In the bedroom, I took off Levy's gloves and put on a surgical pair. The surest and simplest method of making a thing appear to have been done is to do it. I simply went to bed. At one o'clock, I got up, dressed in my own clothes, and took a cab home. The harder part of my task still lay before me. I had to alter the appearance of my subject. A clean shave, a little hair oiling, and manicuring seemed sufficient. I went to the bathroom, turned on the hot and cold taps, and pulled out the plug. The system was in excellent form. Honking, whistling, and booming like a railway terminus. Under cover of this sound, I took the body up to the roof. The rest was simple. I carried my pauper along the flat roof, intending to leave him on someone's staircase. I saw an open window just below me. I knew it was either a bathroom or a kitchen. I lowered the corpse by the aid of bandages and a drain pipe, and soon hauled him into Thip's bathroom. By that time, I was rather pleased with myself, and a sudden inspiration suggested that I should give him the pair of pince-nez I had happened to pick up in Victoria. I fixed them on him, and departed as I had come. Next morning, I sold my Peruvian stock on a rising market, and I supervised the dissection of Sir Rubin's body. My will is made. 
leaving my money to St. Luke's Hospital and bequeathing my body to the same institution for dissection. I feel sure that my brain will be of interest to the scientific world as I shall die by my own hand. Will you do me the favour of seeing that my brain is not damaged by an unskilful practitioner at the post-mortem? Had you submitted to the injection I offered you, Lord Peter, you would, of course, never have reached home alive. And here the manuscript breaks off. Well, that's all clear enough. Isn't it odd? All that coolness, all those brains, and he couldn't resist writing the confession to show how clever he was. And a very good thing for us, but, uh, Lord bless you, sir, these criminals are all alike. <laughs> Freak's epitaph. What next, Peter? I shall give a dinner party for Mr John P. Milligan and Mr Crimplesham. I feel they deserve it for not having murdered Levy. Oh, don't forget the Thips and your mother. Oh, on no account would I deprive myself of the pleasure of their company. Bunter. Me lord. The Napoleon Brandy, if you please. Oh, <laughs> that sounds good. Now, well done, sir. Oh, well done. <laughs> <laughs>